you got a Bible, I want you to start finding Jeremiah chapter 29. Uh, Jeremiah is in the Old Testament. It's considered one of the major prophets. That's not because the minor prophets are junior varsity. It's just because it's long. And uh, if you're looking for Jeremiah 29 while you're trying to find that, I want to set up what I think is a really important conversation for tonight. And it's an important conversation because if you're not a follower of Jesus— and you look at the church of Jesus Christ, it's easy in different moments in history to get the wrong impression of the heart of God. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you're basing your assumptions about God and your assumptions about the gospel on the way that the church engages the world, sometimes you're gonna be led to the wrong conclusions about Jesus. So if you're not a Christian today, we we wanna serve you by actually letting Jesus speak for himself as it relates to his plan for the church. Jesus has a vision for the church. He's got a strategy for the church. He's got a heart for the church. And here's what's so crazy, even though at times the church seems so weak and frail and broken and messed up, at the end of the day, Jesus said that he would build his church. Now, in addition to that, if you're a Christian today and you don't do the hard work of thinking about the church and the church's calling, then like, what are we even doing together? If you're not gonna do the hard work as a follower of Jesus in wrestling through what his dream and vision for the church is, then you might as well call it a day and hit brunch and save an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday morning. So today, for the next couple of minutes, what we want to do is we actually want to think together and we want to work together to establish what is the church of Jesus Christ all about in her relationship to the city. What should the church feel to the city? How should the church engage the city? How should the church navigate the complexities of lostness and injustice and economic problems? How should the church stand up as a city on a hill and point to Jesus in the midst of all kinds of different cultural currents and different movements and voices in a place like OKC? And I wanna start by saying we haven't always done this well. The church has not always done a good job of arriving at a view of the city that reflects the heart of God. In fact, if you go back to very early Christianity, here's what you see almost from the beginning. There's these two poles that try to pull the church out of her calling to the city. And these two poles, we'll just describe them as churches that are against the city on one hand and churches that are exactly like the city on the other hand. So on this hand, we've got churches that are against the city. Now, I'm sure that most people in our church have experienced maybe firsthand, maybe indirectly, churches that tend to think that their job in the city is to dig a moat around their church and the only engagement they have of their community is to occasionally lob a mortar shell over the wall of the church. Churches that are against the city tend to be driven by fear, and tend to be driven by anger. So in the early days of the church, um, in the very beginning, there were Christians that were wrestling through, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to live a life of holiness? What does it mean to be set apart and distinct as the people of God? And for some of those people, their answer to those questions was a tragic withdrawal from the city that led them to retreat into the wilderness instead of being in the city and for the city, following Jesus as light and salt. 
Now, that really hasn't gone away at the local church, has it? Uh, There may not be a ton of compounds in OKC where Christians retreat from the city. Um, There's not a ton of us that have been exposed to like churning our own butter and making homemade culottes and watching Carmen videos. But nonetheless, like there's still this pull in our city. There's still this pull in our city to have churches that think that the way that they're to engage the city is either with apathy or animosity, or hostility, and to create a Christian subculture that is distinct from the city, not in gospel ways, but in silly, tangential, evangelical ways, such as Christian coffee shops that pull you out of the city, such as going to Christian bookstores and buying Christian jeans. That is a thing. You can purchase a pair of Christian jeans. And and I don't know that this is totally true, but I'm just not banking that the heart of God in sending his only begotten son to the world would be that you would have a Christian version of denim on the lower half of your body. And yet, track with me, there's still this pull, there's this pull to try to take seriously the command of Jesus to be set apart from the world, to grow in holiness And in that desire to do that, sometimes we miss the mark. And instead of loving the city, we set the church over and against the city in hostility. Are you tracking with me? Now, that other extreme is just as prevalent. If that's being a church against the city, over here is the church that's exactly like the city. And a church that's exactly like the city, what starts to happen over time is they stop repenting of sin They stop seeing Jesus as the master and commander of their lives and direction. And they start consuming the culture of the city without any discernment, without any repentance, and without any willingness to actually be transformed. So here's what happens over here. A church that's just like the city slowly over time starts to take the values of the city and adopt them as their own starts to worship the gods of the city as their own. Gods like the gods of politics and the gods of success and the gods in OKC of individualism. Churches that are just like the city, they wholesale buy into all of the gods and movements of the city without any discernment. And what starts to happen is church becomes simply a social club or a moment where we get to try to find entertainment in the midst of a busy weekend. Now, here's the point that I'm trying to make today. When you really get into the heart of God for the church, when you study his passion for the church, what God wants to do with the church is not some weak middle ground between being churches against the city and churches just like the city. Like the dream of Jesus for the church is not that we would just split the difference. The dream of Jesus for his church that get this, is worthy and beautiful enough for you to actually give your life away for it. The dream that Jesus has for his church is a totally different way. And it's beautiful and it's breathtaking. And so much of the longing that you have in your soul to have a life of significance and a life that matters in this world is only found when you line yourself up with the dream of Jesus for his people to not be against the city or like the city, but to be in the city and for the city in alignment with Jesus's mission. In Jeremiah chapter 29, in the Old Testament, there's this beautiful moment where the people of God, his old covenant community, the people of God have been taken from Jerusalem, which was considered like the city of God. 
and they've been exiled to the city of man known as Babylon. And in big, bad Babylon, God is going to speak to his children about his heart for their engagement of Babylon to the glory of God. So take your Bible. We're going to read Jeremiah 29. We'll read a few verses. And then we want to pull three truths out of this text that help frame what it looks like to be a church for the city. Jeremiah 29, starting in verse four. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they're prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord." In this beautiful text written thousands of years ago is this missional DNA that God wants to infuse into his people that changes the way we do things that are considered sacred, like gathering to worship, and things that we do that are considered mundane, like going to work and going to school. And in this DNA, here's what we find. We find that number one, to be a church for the city starts by having our identity rewired based on who God is and who he says we are. So track with me, look at this. It's beautiful. To be a church for the city is to live as elect exiles. Verse four, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So track with me. In this beautiful text, that's all about being a people for the city. What God starts with is not a list of all the missional activities that they need to get done to be good missionaries to Babylon. God doesn't start with, um, here's the 10 things you need to do for social justice. And here's the 20 things you need to do for personal evangelism. And here's my priority list of all the people groups that are under-resourced and not served. Now get busy and go and do it. Here's what God does that's so brilliant. He begins their engagement of the city by reminding them of who he is and who they are because of him. He says, I'm the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. What's he saying? I'm God and I have put my love on you, which actually works and frames your DNA, not first around what you do for your job or what you do for your ministry, but it roots your DNA in the grace and mercy of a God who loves. Why are they his people? Here's what we see throughout the entire Old Testament. Israel wasn't his people because they were more moral than the other nations. They weren't his people because they were more militarily powerful or economically robust. They weren't his people because they were the biggest or most important nation 
What God says again and again through all of scripture is that they were his people simply because he chose them in grace, he chose them in love, that they would be marked by his name and end up being a blessing to all the other nations of the world. Now, this is really important for you and me. What this means is that to be a Christian that's in the city and for the city starts by realizing that what it is to be a Christian is not defined by all of your activities first and foremost. It's defined by the love of God in Jesus that changes who you are. What identity means is that you are not who you think you are. You're not what you feel about yourself. You're not what others say or feel about you. You are who God says you are. And in Christ Jesus, here's what's crazy. The love that he's poured out on you is so high and so deep that it actually has the power to give you the name, the identity, the security, the meaning that your soul is crying out for. And here's why this matters if we're gonna love our city. The city always tells you, it always tells you that it can answer your ache for identity, doesn't it? Babylon was a city with all kinds of different competing voices. And the competing voices of Babylon all pointed to different things that they thought were beautiful and important and valuable. And those voices all said, hey, if you sell out for this, then your life is gonna have meaning and depth. If you acquire this, your life is gonna be rooted. If you get these things over here, what's gonna happen is all those things that you know are really jacked up and twisted inside your soul, they'll feel straight and you can breathe. And what happens in a city like OKC and what happens in a city like Babylon is those voices always promise huge, massive things and they always deliver nothing but emptiness for our identity. So here's what the city says. Let's just be honest about it. The city says, your identity, be, your identity can be found in your career. So work really hard and put all your eggs in that basket and sacrifice whatever you have to sacrifice to get the success that you dreamed of. Because if you get the kind of success and notoriety at work that you really want, then what's gonna happen is you're actually gonna rescue yourself from a life of meaninglessness. Or our city says, hey, um, let me tell you where identity is found. It's in money and possessions. Can I, can I just tell you how many times I've had conversations with men and women in our church that thought that making $100,000 was gonna answer the identity problem that they carried in the depths of their soul. And then they get to that first 100,000 and what happens? The marker just moves back another 100,000. And they get to that second 100,000 and now the marker moves back again. It keeps eluding them. Why? Because the city says this will name you, but money can't name you. In Oklahoma City and Babylon, the city says your sexual identity can be what forms your sense of self, your desires, who you sleep with. The city says your marital status, your image. Like, is this not true? Just think of OKC and how it's changed in the last 15 years. I've been down here doing ministry for close to 20 years now and the city's changed so much. We planted a church in the heart of the city 12 years ago because it was a gritty part of town and now it's the beautiful part of town. And what's fascinating about it being the beautiful part of town is that the problem of identity is just as bad as it was 
when it was just a group of outcasts that were hanging out down here. Because the city promises to answer the deepest longings of your soul, but it can't answer those longings because only one, the one that created you has the power to name you. And if we're gonna love our city, we have to resist the lies of the city that promise big things and can't deliver. So God says to his people, I'm the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who you are is defined by my love and my pursuit and my work to name you. Flowing out of that, it leads to the second beautiful truth that to be a church for the city is to be an exile that lives on purpose. Look what God points out in verse four, to all the exiles that I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Let let me ask you a quick question. Is God putting the emphasis on Israel's choices that led to them going to Babylon or is God putting the emphasis on his decisions that led to them ending up in Babylon? What do you guys think? Because we know like there were a lot of choices that they made that led to that exile to Babylon. There was rebellion and disobedience. There's all kinds of things that they could look back on and say, here's the formula that got me from Jerusalem to Babylon. But here's what God says in this text. It's crazy. God says, I'm actually the one in the midst of all your choices that are real and important. I'm the one that sovereignly orchestrated for you and for Babylon to bring you into this captivity to plant you in this city. This is a big deal. Because Paul says in the New Testament to a group of Greek philosophers, he says, you don't live where you live randomly. You don't live there just because that's the career track that you're going down and you ended up in that neighborhood or you ended up in that university or you just randomly picked OCU or UCO. You didn't just line up all the options in the housing market and land in your neighborhood. All of those are real factors and there was real choice that was happening. But in the midst of all those factors and all those choices, here's what God wants you to know. He's the one that planted you where he planted you and he planted you there so that more people could know his love and know his grace. See, to be a church for the city is not to always be dreaming of being in a different city. It's not to be in your neighborhood and not being present, fantasizing about a better neighborhood and an upgrade. It's not to show up on Monday morning as a barista and to be angsty and mad that you're not actually doing the career in advertising that you dreamed of. To be an exile in the city means that wherever God's planted you on your block, with your job, in your stage of life, single or married with kids or without kids, that in all those things, the living God is working to shape your life in such a way that you could be about his mission. So God tells his people, he tells them these beautiful truths that, hey, to love and serve Babylon, to not listen to Babylon who wants to assimilate you and make you a church just like the city, because that's what Nebuchadnezzar wanted to do, right? He says, here's your Babylonian name, your identity. He says, here's the Babylonian gods, pick which ones you're gonna worship. And the religious leaders of Israel, they wanna be a church against the city. They're telling the people, don't engage the city, don't love the city. And God is saying in the midst of all those voices, no, to be a people for the city starts with remembering whose you are 
and remembering that he's the one that planted you with your talents and your gifts and your strengths in this moment with this spouse or without a spouse on the block that you live in, he put you there that you might live for his mission. We wanna be a church that has humble confidence in our city. It's humble because we don't have anything to boast on other than the grace of God. Like an arrogant Christian is the biggest oxymoron in the history of the world. If you're a Christian today, you're not a Christian because you're smarter or better or more moral than anybody else. If you're a Christian today, it's because you got to the very end of yourself and you threw up your hands and said, I can never stack up to what God expects and demands. My only hope is Jesus and his life, death and resurrection. What that creates in you is a radical humility to love and serve people that disagree with you, that might even hate you, that might think that the doctrines that you believe as a Christian are ridiculous because we know that the only difference between us and them, the only difference is grace and our hope and our prayers that they would experience that grace. In addition, it means that we can be confident in the city because if God is for you and loves you, Hey, look look at me. If God's for you and loves you, you are not up for vote. You can get off the stupid treadmill of trying to get everybody on your side and politicking to keep friends and manipulating to stay in relationships and freaking out when people get mad at you. You can get off of that treadmill and you can breathe in deeply in rest and in grace because if the one that created you is for you, at the end of the day, that's the number one verdict that matters. We wanna be humble and we wanna be confident in our city. Now, this leads us to the second thing quickly. I want you to look at what happens next because that identity as an elect exile, as one whose identity is from God and who's planted in the city, leads to working for the welfare of the city. Working for the welfare of the city. Look at verse seven. Jeremiah writes, seek the welfare, literally the shalom of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Okay, We've probably heard this verse several times and it's easy to just read over it and not find it totally shocking. Let me tell you why this verse should totally make you go stepbrothers when they're forbidden from TV and be like, what? Like, this is one of the craziest verses in the Bible for two reasons, for two reasons. The first reason that this verse is absolutely insane is because the word used as welfare there doesn't just mean one or two things that might make it a better place. The word translated as welfare is a word known as shalom and it's bigger and broader and crazier than what you might dream of. Here's what shalom really is. It's not just the spiritual health of the city. It's not just the social health of the city. It's not just the physical health of the city. The word shalom quite literally means everything needed for human flourishing and thriving under the grace of God. Shalom points back to God's created order where man was right with God and man was right with one another, society, and man was right with self, identity, and man was right with creation. That's the physical This idea of shalom is God saying something really crazy about what it means to be a church for the city. Here's what he's saying. 
the things that you might not think matter, matter deeply. And the things that are spiritual are not negated by the things that are physical. I care about all of it. Here's what it means. To be a church for the city means that first and foremost, we want people to experience shalom with God. You can make all the money in the world. We could have a society that has less crime and less war, less systemic injustice. But if we don't know the love of God that we were created to be rooted in, to live in, to breathe in is our greatest delight. Your life will be a life of poverty. We want people to know his love. We want them to know Jesus. That's part of shalom is being right with God. But being right with God then leads to It leads to social shalom. It leads to learning to love and forgive other people as we've been loved and forgiven. It leads to, and and by the way, um, throughout the New Testament, you just can't get away from this. Meeting God and being reconciled to him through Jesus results in reconciliation between people, the rich and the poor different ethnicities, different nationalities, different cultures, repenting of their sin and their biases and actually living as brothers and sisters in harmony. What does that come out of? It comes out of the shalom that only God can bring through Jesus. It includes the physical. Can I I just say, um, there's places in OKC where there's single moms, single moms who are raising kids in rough neighborhoods And those rough kids have nothing to do while mom's at work and they walk really dangerous streets where there's all kinds of thugs and criminals and there's no playgrounds and they go to bed hungry at night. Let me tell you something you should know about the living God. He cares about their eternal souls and he cares about their bellies being filled. He does. He cares about their immortal souls and he also cares about them having a safe playground so they don't get shot when they're just being outside. When God says, work for the welfare of the city, he's saying something big and broad that's only possible in Jesus. And that's that we want to see peace between man and God, peace between people, peace between man and the physical world where we steward creation. We want to be a people that works for shalom. Now that is shocking and breathtaking because most churches either just do the social stuff and know Jesus gospel stuff, or they do the Jesus gospel stuff and they neglect all of the other implications and how we engage in society. And what Jeremiah is saying is, hey man, it's a both and. Now, the second thing that's shocking, which is actually more shocking. The second thing that's shocking is, what city is God telling them to seek this big, broad, deep shalom in? What city? Not rhetorical, not a trick question. You have it in front of you. Bueller, Bueller. <laughs> Babylon, right? It's the city of Babylon. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you. You're like, oh yeah, Babylon. Bob Marley has some songs about it. Um, but here's why, here's why that verse should totally shock you. As much as Jerusalem becomes like a symbol of the city of God, Babylon in scripture is a symbol of the city of man. Babylon's a place of un, unbelievable violence, Babylon's a place of unbelievable sexual exploitation. There were temple prostitutes and all kinds of the belittling of women and sexual addictions. Babylon was a place of unbelievable greed. 
Like it was a city of greed. It was an empire of greed. It was people that would do almost anything to get ahead financially, even if they had to destroy one another to do it. Babylon was a city full of tons of idols. They worshiped various gods and goddesses and they worshiped those gods and goddesses in some really immoral, disgusting ways in their temples. So here's what God's saying. Just let, let yourself feel the tension of this. God's saying in the belly of the beast, in big, bad, wicked Babylon, I want my people to work for my shalom to reach and to move in that city. Babylon is not Mayberry. Are you you tracking with this? It's not an idealized version of some perfect community. Babylon is not the little part of OKC where everything is manicured and perfect. Everybody's happy and smiling and talking about community. Babylon is everything that's wrong in the city. And God says, yep, I have compassion for it. I want to move there. There's a prophet named Jonah. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's crazy. And this prophet named Jonah gets sent to this city that's a lot like Babylon called Nineveh. Really evil, really wicked. And God sends Jonah with this message. Hey, your corruption stinks to my nose. I'm going to wipe out your city. I'm going to remove your city if you don't repent and trust me and let my grace transform you. Well, Jonah goes and he preaches And it's like this massive move of the Holy Spirit. The whole city repents and they love God and they turn from their sin. It's this beautiful moment. It's one of the biggest revivals in the history of humanity. And Jonah is so mad about it. He's pouting and he's sulking. He hates Nineveh. He wants Nineveh to get what she deserves because it's a bad city with corruption and evil and idolatry. And because their ethnocentricities are different than his as a Jewish man, he wants them to get the end of the barrel from the living God. And God has this crazy conversation with him. And I think it's a conversation we need God to have with us. God looks at Jonah and you can feel... You can feel the compassion in God's soul as he says this. He says, hey, should I not have compassion on a city with over 100,000 inhabitants that don't know their right hands from their left, let alone many cattle? What's God saying? He's like, Jonah, you don't even get my heart. You have no idea how my posture is towards sinful humanity, how badly I want to heal them and redeem them and change them. You have no idea the links that I'm going to go to to make it possible for Babylon and Nineveh and OKC to experience my shalom and my goodness. If it's shocking to you that God tells his people to seek the shalom of Babylon, it should be even more shocking to you that Jesus left heaven to step into the depths of Babylon and humanity. That's what he did. Jesus stepped into a world where we worship money and hate people. He stepped into a world of sexual exploitation. He stepped into a world where we, we make dumb stuff with our hands and we look at the living God and say, we don't want you, we want this. This is my God our trinkets and our silly pursuits of, of eternity and what we're going to build and our legacies. Jesus steps into all of that racism and hatred and worship of things that aren't God. Jesus steps into all that evil. Here's what's crazy. He steps into it all to be crushed in the midst of it 
so that he could be the prince of peace that actually offers the shalom of God to cities like Babylon and Nineveh and OKC and Mumbai so that people could trust in him and actually be forgiven and cleansed. And this verse, this chapter talks about a lot of ways that happens. It happens through work and it happens through multiplication as people meet God, as we evangelize and share our faith. It happens through prayer as we pray that the justice of God would be poured out. But the point of all this is to say this, if it scandalizes you that the worst parts of our city are the biggest candidates for God to move and bring revival and grace, you don't get the gospel yet. Probably a silly name in the grand scope of history to have a church called Frontline Church. (laughs) And when we named it Frontline Church, the same year that we planted um, Frontline Flea and Tech Medicine had like an unlimited marketing budget. So like every commercial was Frontline Flea and Tech Medicine. And I'm like, oh, dude, I hate my life. (laughs) But listen, We called this church Frontline Church, not because we did a market test and thought it would be branded well. We called it Frontline Church because we knew that the scandal of God's heart for Babylon would be forgotten if we didn't keep it in front of us. We knew it because our hearts are prone to comfort and to retreating from darkness. And what God wants for his people is for us to be the ones that run into the fray, that run into human brokenness, that run into human suffering, that engage the parts of the world that are dark and broken and needy and to do it all in confidence that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. A church for the city, a church for the city is a group of people who are elect exiles their identities in God, not the city and the gods of the city. And their exiles where God's planted them, thanking him for their neighborhoods and their blocks and their friends and their jobs and their classes. And they're a group of people that are working for the shalom of big, bad Babylon. And I'll end with this. A church for the city is also a group of people that's committed for the long haul that's committed for the long haul. Look at verse eight. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promises and bring you back to this place. And the famous verse that we might have on coffee cups ripped out of context is verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Here's what's happening here. Warring against the long-term commitment to know God and be faithful in working for the good of their city are a group of false teachers led by primarily a guy named Hananiah. And Hananiah and the false teachers are not the kind of false teachers that you can tell are crazy just by looking at them. Like most false teachers that do a good job with their false teaching are not guys that dress like Rasputin and drink pigeon blood and like have like pentagrams carved into their foreheads. 
You look at some of those guys, you're like, yeah, I don't really want to sit down and read your best-selling book. You're crazy. False teachers are actually guys like Hananiah that do two things that are really insidious. One, they tell us what our flesh wants to hear, not what God wants us to hear. And two, they tell part of the truth without the whole truth. Here's what Hananiah is telling the people of God. He's saying, hey, God loves you. You're his people. There's no way he would want you to be in Babylon working for the good of this city. In fact, here's what's going to happen. This is chapter 28. In two years, God's going to bring you from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And it's all going to work out great. You're all going to get a happy ending. Woo! You get a car. You get a car. You get a car. And what Hananiah is doing in that moment is this, like he's telling them exactly what they want to hear because nobody wants to be an exile in Babylon when your home's Jerusalem. And he's telling them part of the truth without the whole truth. God's going to bring you back to Jerusalem. True, not the whole truth. I think in this moment for us to be people that love the city, one of the things we've got to fight for really hard is recognizing that we need more discernment with the kind of teaching that we're absorbing into our heads and into our hearts. Because there are tons of Hananias out there right now and they don't look like crazy creepers. They look like winsome people and compassionate people. And they tell you a piece of the truth. Like, hey, God accepts you just as you are. Is that true? Yeah, that's grace. It's grace, man. God accepts you exactly as you are. You don't do anything to earn it. You don't change yourself to get God to love you. You don't do works to get on God's side. But they leave out the part of the truth that says to be captured by that grace means that Jesus is your Lord and your boss and he's gonna ruthlessly pursue every part of your life and he'll dethrone you as the king of every department until he finishes that good work. Jesus loves you too much to let you be your own God. So you know what? He's going to demand to be the God, not just of your Sunday morning hour and 15 minutes. He's going to demand to be the God of your money. He's going to demand to be the God of your genitals. He won't settle for Gnostic silliness where your spirit is his, but what you do with your hands to love your neighbors doesn't belong to him. What Hananiah is doing is he's given a piece of the truth, but not the whole. And he's telling them what they want to hear instead of telling them the truth. And Jeremiah tells them the truth. Here's the deal. God is for you. You can have gospel hope. He loves you. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, to give you a future and a hope. And that's all rooted in God, not the city that you live in. And you're also going to be in Babylon for 70 years, which means you and your children are all going to die in exile. What this means is that we can have long haul faithfulness by God's grace in our city by realizing that God is the author and finisher of our faith. And we want, we want the whole truth. We want all of Jesus. Hey, can can I just, tell you something that freaks me out about our church right now. It freaks me out how much the rampant individualism 
that's just the, it's the air we breathe as an American. It's like, I'm God. I determine what's true for me. I determine what's good for me. I live life on my own terms. I go where I want to go. I do what I want to do. I'm the boss. It's all my decisions. It's my prerogative. It freaks me out for our church how much of that culture is in here. This is antichrist. Jesus loves you so much. He's so much better at being sovereign over your life than you are. He knows the plans he has for you to give you a future and a hope. And yes, in this life, it might feel like 70 years of exile. It might feel difficult and slow and painful. But if he's your future and he's your hope and the plans he has for you are good, you can rest in that. You can follow Jesus. You can be a committed disciple. You can lay down self as the end-all be-all of how you make your decisions. The fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom, it's pretty simple, really. It's saying, not my will, but yours be done. You're God, I'm not. And it's simple, but it's super hard, isn't it? So as we close this today, here's our prayer for Frontline Church. We don't want to be a church against the city. We don't want to retreat from the city and hate the city. We don't want to mock the city. We don't want to throw hand grenades over the walls to the city. We want to be, we want to be a church that loves our city. We want to work for the shalom of our city. We don't want to buy the lies of our city, but we want to be in our city and for our city, telling people about Jesus and loving the poor and serving our city to the glory of God. We don't want to be a church that's just like the city. Let me tell you one of the most missional things that could possibly happen in OKC would just be for a group of people to follow Jesus in their relationships as they date. Our city would be like, what? Like if the dudes in our church just decided to obey Jesus literally and and follow Jesus in the way that they honor women and treat ladies, if that's the only thing, that changed in the next 12 months, our city would be like, what is the deal with those people? What is that? That's being in the city, but not of the city. The gods of the city are going to let you down. The God who exiles you to the city for his glory is faithful. And the plans he has for you are for welfare, not calamity. Even when it feels like you're going through 70 years of exile. He's good and he's got you.